Hillary. I'm Emily. And, and we're, we're the Sirens. Sirens. Today we're talking about a movie we have mentioned on previous episodes several times, The Philadelphia Story. It stars Katherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, and Jimmy Stewart, as well as um, features some people who we have seen in previous movies. It's directed by George Cukor. Cukor? That sounds Sure-ish. <laughs> it was written by Donald Ogden Stewart based on Philip Berry's play, and it is the story of a rich divorcee on the main line of Philadelphia who, on the eve of her wedding day, is visited by a reporter, a photographer, and her ex-husband. Chaos ensues, I guess. Yeah. There's some blackmail. (laughs) (laughs) Chaos and other stuff ensues, yes. Blackmail, great gender dynamics, and romance. Very problematic family relationships. Swimming. (laughs) Excellent diving abilities. That's right. The wealth. This this movie I have seen probably more times than any other movie we've talked about yet. Oh, really? I've just seen this a million times. And I have a very strange relationship with it because... It's it's upsetting in a lot of ways, but it also was formative to me because mm-hmm. I I love Katherine Hepburn and I think I like over identified with her in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> in a lot of ways when I was growing up. So um, watching it this I, it had been a couple of years since I'd watched it, and this time I was just even more horrified by so many of the things that happened. So many things. <laughs> Do you want to share some trivia about this movie before we? Yes. The film was shot in eight weeks, and there were no retakes wow. of any of the scenes, so I think that yeah. shows what a pro-cast they had yeah. doing this. Um, and some of the scenes were even ad-libbed, and they just took like the first take of the ad-libbed scene, and they were fine. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> um, like the scene where Jimmy Stewart shows up drunk at Cary Grant's house. Yes. And hiccups, and it looked. I remember noticing this time when I was watching it that Cary Grant looked like he was surprised. Yeah, surprised, (laughs) and like he was really gonna laugh. It looked very authentic. Yes. And it's because Jimmy Stewart just made that up on the spot, (laughs) and then Cary Grant says, Excuse me. (laughs) And they just left it in. So hilarious. I thought that was great. Um, Tracy Lord was loosely inspired by a real person. It oh. was like a mainline socialite named Helen Hope Montgomery Scott, if that sounds sure. snooty enough for you. Helen Hope Montgomery Scott. <laughs> she was considered Philadelphia royalty. Uh, Vanity Fair called her, quote, the unofficial queen of Philadelphia's wasp oligarchy. Great. It's quite a title. Yeah. Um, and she had no problem with the fact that the play was based somewhat around her life. And she said, I thought it was great fun, but I really didn't pay much attention. I don't really think Tracy Lord was like me, except that she was very energetic and motivated. I guess if you're that, like, rich and well-known, you don't even care. Right, you don't have like, to care. Oh, I'm just, I'm in the popular culture, of course. Yeah, of course. Um, the playwright, Philip Barry, wrote the role of Tracy Lord specifically for Katherine Hepburn. You can kind of tell that. Yeah, she is pretty amazing in the role. Um, at the time that, well, before this was made into a play, um, Katherine Hepburn was 
going through a bad period in her career and oh. was considered box office poison. Mm-hmm. And she bought the movie rights to the play. Oh, and right. then when they wanted to make it into a movie, she like she made a lot of money and it totally turned her career around. So, yeah, savvy business moves. That's right. Uh, Hepburn originally wanted Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy to play the two male leads. Oh my god. <laughs> Which I could oh see. I mean, Spencer Tracy plays journalists in other movies, but it would have been different. It would have been an entirely different movie. Um, Cary Grant was given his choice of the two male lead roles, and he chose the smaller part. C.K. Dexter Haven, which is, yes. like, again, another it's straight just, mainline name. You can just make up ridiculous names, like <laughs> Buddy Harrington. <laughs> like there needs to be, like, a BuzzFeed quiz. What is your rich mainline <laughs> Philadelphia uh, name? <laughs> So, oh, but he still demanded top billing, even though he has the least lines of the three. I'm rolling my eyes. Yes. (laughs) Um, He also got the largest salary of $137,500 and had them pay it directly to the British war effort. Oh. So he didn't actually get paid. Basically, no. But he he just went right to charity. Good. Way to use your power for good, Cary Grant. (laughs) <laughs> so, Catherine Hepburn made 75000 for acting and then, like, whatever she made for the right. rights. And Jimmy Stewart, who had, like, a ton of lines in this movie and really, in some ways, like, got the most screen time, he was only paid $15,000. $15,000? So, I was like, wow, Jimmy Stewart, like, really had to work for $15,000. But he won... Um, an Academy Award for his role. So they all were compensated in different ways. Yes. But he he didn't believe that he deserved it for this. He thought he was miscast in the part as the journalist. But he was amazing. I know. He was so... I, that's what I thought. I was like, he was fantastic in this. Um, but he had been nominated the year before for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And he didn't win and everyone thought that he should have won and he was overlooked so it kind of and some people thought it was kind of one of those like Um, compensation yeah type awards so he wasn't even planning to go to the Oscars (laughs) that year and he got a call like right before the ceremony that was like you might want to put on a dinner jacket and come on down and then he won I had said in his bio when we did them like a couple episodes Mm -hmm. ago he was friends with um, Henry Fonda, who was nominated in the same category for The Grapes of Wrath that year, and Jimmy Stewart really thought that he deserved the Oscar, so he like didn't feel good about it. But he still brought it home to his right. hardware shop, shop. <laughs> of his parents, and they put it in the window, <laughs> so I'd say that's still so, a win. They're all nice people. Um, <laughs> so for bios, we had already covered the three leads, mm-hmm. and we thought we would do some of the more minor characters. So who did you pick? Um, I looked into the life of Virginia Weedler, which I have Americanized her German last name. I'm not sure how they actually pronounced it, but she was born um, Virginia Anna Adelaide Weedler in 1927. She was the sixth child, the youngest child in her family, and the second child of her like, of all of her siblings, to be born in the United States. Her parents came 
from Germany and settled in Los Angeles. She made her first film appearance at the age of four in 1931, and her first um, credited role was in 1934, when she was about seven. Um, She was apparently known for having a little bit of a temper and getting her way because of it. Um, And over the course of her career as a child actor, she appeared in lots of um, different movies with lots of like famous adult actors like George Raft and Gary Cooper and obviously the three in this movie and Myrna Loy and William Powell. So she worked with these like heavy hitters. Um, she was under contract for a couple of years with Paramount um, and then signed with MGM in 1938 when she was 11. She was in a film with Mickey Rooney called Love is a Headache in 1938 Um, And that success um, led to some larger roles, um, uh, including being cast in the movie The Women, um, which I have not seen. I don't either, but we should do that Add that to our list. Um, But she plays Norma Shearer's character's daughter. She's only about 11 in that movie. One of her last films was um, The Philadelphia Story. But her very last film was a movie called um, Best Foot Forward. She retired from the screen in, at the age of 16, having filmed in, having appeared in 40 movies. Wow. And then went on to live a, a private life, um, marrying and having two children. And then she actually lived a very short life. She had a lifelong heart ailment that led to her death at the age of 41 in July of 1968. One of the few actor, female actors that we've discussed who, who didn't die of overdose or other kind of suicide and yet still died young. It's kind of nice to hear that she got out of the business, though, mm-hmm. as a, and just could have a normal life at that point. Because I think it's really hard to make that transition from yeah. child star to either adult star or private citizen. <laughs> yeah. She evidently um, like refused um, to be interviewed and refused all like possible like public life after she retired. Even even though she retired at 16 and even though she, you know, refused the many like limelight, she there was there's a small but mighty following for her still apparently and even oh. in like 2007 there was some like proclamation of Virginia Wheedler Day on the occasion of her 90th birthday what would have been her 90th birthday yeah so <laughs> see it's funny because I, I guess I probably haven't seen her in anything else but I've found her character so annoying in this movie that I just <laughs> like she just irritates me yeah. <laughs> well I looked at Ruth Hussey who played the photographer Elizabeth oh, yeah. Embry, and she received an Academy Award nomination for the role. And this is also the film role that she was really the best known for. So she was born in Providence, Rhode Island on October 30th, 1911 as Ruth Carol O'Rourke. And she earned a degree from the University of Michigan School of Drama and worked as an actress with their summer stock company for two seasons. Then she came back to Providence and worked as a radio fashion commentator on a local station. That seems difficult, (laughs) commenting on fashion on the radio. Yeah, just like describing it and being like, thumbs up, thumbs down. (laughs) She auditioned at the Providence Playhouse, 
but the theater director there turned her down saying that the roles were cast only out of New York. So she went to New York and on her first day there signed with a talent agent who booked her for a role in a play starting the next day back in Providence. Oh my gosh. Which to me sounds very intense. Yeah. Uh, and she also worked as a model out of New York at that time, huh. too. She landed a number of stage roles with touring companies, and when the play Dead End toured the country in 1937, she was spotted on opening night in Los Angeles by M MGM talent scout Billy Grady. And MGM signed her to a player's contract, and she made her film debut that same year. Uh, they quickly made her a leading lady for their, like, B-movies. So she wasn't, like, top bill star, but she was still pretty well-known. Um, and she usually played sophisticated, worldly roles, which yeah. I think we could say that this is. One of them, yeah. <laughs> she started movies for about a decade, including The Philadelphia Story, but always re returned to the stage, which she actually preferred. And then I thought this was interesting. Later in life, she co-starred in The Facts of Life, on TV with Bob Hope. Really? Yeah. Which I, you know, would not have identified as no. her. Um, <laughs> and she died April 19th, 2005 oh. at 93 wow. from complications from an appendectomy. That's a good long life. Yeah, good long life. She worked. Doesn't appear to have any scandals or terrible things she, happening she to her. She didn't die of an overdose when she was so I would say, you know, she we, passes the Bechdel test. She she passes. <laughs> I think we did pretty well this That's time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so are you ready to get in the movie? I yes, I think we we better ought to. <laughs> <laughs> there is so much to say about this movie on so many levels. I yeah, I have I have a low hanging fruit. Okay. that I want to address, which is at some point they identified the ages of these characters, mm -hmm. that Kit Kittredge is 32 and Mike is 30. I'm assuming that C.K. Dexter Haven and Tracy are approximately that same age, which to me was shocking because <laughs> I looked at them and just like assumed that they were older, but I guess of course not. But Kittredge looks like he's 50 years old. Yeah. And there's a like particularly gutting line when or when Tracy says to Mike that he hasn't accomplished very much in his first year, 30 years. Which oh, yeah. <laughs> that upset me. Because I was like, oh, I'm 31, and he already has a book out and is a professional journalist. Right. So. We are wasting our lives, Emily, <laughs> is what this, one, of, one of the many lessons that I think this film can teach us. Yeah, I also was struck by that. A lot of movies from this time, the ages of the characters are younger than I would expect. And yeah. I think it's because people dressed with so much sophistication mm -hmm. and then also acted like adults. Right. <laughs> Whereas now people are still like somewhat considered youths until they're like 35. So. We are not currently um, recording this podcast in our pajamas, though. We are, no, we are we, dressed like professionals. We actually got dressed... We are in a conference room, yes. so I, you know, we're not we're we, not terrible. That's right. We don't look fifty five. <laughs> we look our ages. <laughs> so, uh, the, in the very opening of this movie, first of all, the score is beautiful. Yes. The opening is C K Dexter. What Haven? <laughs> C K Dexter Haven winding up to punch Tracy in the face. Then 
hesitating and being like, no, I'll just knock her down. Yeah. That is the opening scene of this movie. Yeah. The opening scene is spousal abuse. Yeah. And it's... Played for laughs. That's right. And it's basically all downhill from there. And that's, like, to the point that at the end they get married again, which is... (laughs) Yeah, and uh, let's just state some facts (laughs) that are part of the plot of this movie. So Tracy marries this guy who's, like, clearly a family friend who's from the same class as her. They've grown up together. They grew up together. He turns out to be an addict. Right. And, you know, is not getting better. Right. And she divorces him. He knocks her down for doing this. Right. He eventually comes clean. Like, is then he doesn't drink anymore. But he subtly blames his alcoholism on, on her. her. Then she's getting married to a guy who, like, maybe doesn't seem that interesting, but is not abusive or an addict. But right. is terrible in other ways. Right. Is terrible in other ways. Like, assumes that she's a slut. Yes, and also <laughs> seems to be, like, thinking the marriage will help his political career, which right. red flag. But, like, the fact that he does the least offensive things in some ways of the men of this movie is uh, is troubling. And then her father has an affair. And blames it on her. Blames it on her. Maybe if he had had a daughter who was... I think I wrote down the actual horrifying quote. Oh, my Hold gosh. On. No, I just wrote in capital letters, he's horrible, he's totally gaslighting her. It, it, oh, he called her a prig and a spinster. And said she might as well be made of bronze. So, I don't understand. It is a very normal child reaction that if one of your parents cheats on the other parent, that you will be angry with them and take the side of the parent who did not cheat. Like, that is a fairly typical reaction. Yeah. That is what she does. And then he comes back at her and blames it on her. The mother is terrible. She's just like, oh, I don't care about the affair. And he... And the father's like, the affair has nothing to do with the wife. It's about the daughter. I was like, so is this so like, like an if you could, thing? Right. Like, if only you could sexually abuse your 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 daughter, you wouldn't philander with younger other younger women. <laughs> and then, wait, we're not even done with the facts. Her uncle is sexually harassing the female photographer. Like, Liz, time, yeah. And he even pokes her in the butt. Right. She says, I, you know, so I was just, I'm going to find it in my notes. She says, I think I just was pinched in the butt. And Mike says, I think it's Mike who says, um, you know, pay attention to what you think. Basically, like, don't undercut what you think happened. Trust yourself. Which is the only good point in this movie, perhaps. I mean, Mike, Mike has some issues, too. But he is, really ends up. I don't know, Seth who says she has been. Okay, because I was like, I don't know if I'm saying that. Um, <laughs> Mike is the only one who is not, like, just automatically written off as a terrible person yeah. who is a male in this movie. Yeah. And all the other men are terrible. He does say some things after they have their drunken night together to indicate that he, like, somewhat understands about consent. Yeah. But, oh my gosh, Yeah. Basically, she's being, like, emotionally abused by, like, multiple different people in this movie. Everyone. And then the conclusion is that she thinks they're all right, and she goes back to her horrible, like, abusive ex-husband, which isn't even a decision that's discussed. Yeah. He just decides, oh, we're going to get married again. Announce this. 
Cyrano de Bergerac style. I mean, this is not sounding like a movie that I like. I do like it for other reasons, but it's hard to watch a lot of it. Yeah, it is. It is horrible. <laughs> it it really is. I mean, I think because I grew up in the Philly area, I also think that there's a lot of little like Philly jokes and mm-hmm. stuff that I liked about it growing up, and like the whole main line. Fa- I mean, this, there's still people living like that on the main line. Yeah. in Philly, and there's certain names in the area that you just hear that last name and you're like, oh yeah, that's a mainline person. One of the good things about this movie is that it portrays her response to you know being called a goddess and a queen and a statue and made of stone, and you like see her over time realize that she is like projecting this image, but she doesn't want to project this, this image, and the reason she likes Kit- Kittredge is that she, he doesn't necessarily put her on the pedestal, but she also doesn't want to be treated poorly, which is what her father does. Yeah, She takes up with Mike, you know, briefly, because he doesn't do any of those things, and thinks that she's beautiful and smart, and... It treats her as an intellectual equal, Yeah, whereas the other guys just talk down to her. Yeah. I rewatched this at a time in my early 20s when I was like being very self-critical and all the things that they said about her like hit really close to home with me yeah. <laughs> of, like her being like judgmental and not like empathetic to other people and like holding herself to too high of a standard and all of that stuff and I remember watching this and getting like really depressed afterwards yeah. being like I'm Tracy Lord but now when I watch it like all this time later I'm like no they're horrible <laughs> those yeah. people are horrible well and I think that that I mean that I, I think that's what I appreciate about appreciate about this movie is it sort of unintentionally perhaps accurately portrays <laughs> the experience of being a woman of a certain age yeah I also like that they directly talk about class a lot Mm -hmm. in this movie. The effective message of the movie is not a very great message about class, but especially the conversations between Mike and Tracy, I think, get at some things. I mean, she accuses him of being an intellectual snob. Yeah. Yeah, there's that interesting, like, arrogance conversation they have. But there is an element of... If you were not born to that class that that the lords are a part of and Dexter's a part of, even if you rise in status, you still can't enter that. There is yeah. no entering that realm. It's they so they're socialized in such a way that they understand how to behave and they understand certain types of jokes. And you will never know. <laughs> you will never be able to do it. And no one's going to ever be able to explain to you what yar means. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I quote that line all the time. I'll be like, my, isn't she yar? <laughs> um, but, like, the scene where Kit is trying to get on the horse, and he they, like, offer yeah. him a leg up, and he can't do it. And he doesn't get a lot of the jokes. It just felt like, oh, we're making fun of new money. We're making fun yeah. of the people who are coming up. And in the end, she goes back to the person who is from her own, like, she, she dabbles with him. He's actually come up, like, sort of close to their level, rejects him. Then she dabbles with Mike, who is just in a different class and yeah. has not moved, doesn't go with him. And then she goes back to, like, I'm an old blue blood family who, like, has the estate next door. <laughs> yeah. It reminded me of... The, have you read any of the Nancy Mitford books, like uh-huh. Love in a Cold Climate and stuff no. like that? I mean, they're British, but 
it seemed like the same kind of thing. Like there are all these weird inside jokes and mannerisms that no one else would get. <laughs> and it's just like this other world that is impenetrable. So yeah, like the ultimate class message is kind of like stick with your own kind. Yeah. <laughs> but at least they don't talk, try to change. Yeah. They talk about class, which a lot of these movies don't yeah. do. Yeah. What did you think about Liz as a character, the photographer? I liked her. I liked, I thought she had some of the best laugh lines in the movie. Mm -hmm. I didn't like how she was so passive about how she was interested in Mike and then Tracy and Mike have medallions and she's just kind of like, well, I can't compete with Tracy. And like, yeah, not that I really wanted her to get in a fight about that, but it was more like, you know, go after what you want, basically. Yeah. Like, she was in love with him, but not in any way that was, like, overly passionate. And I felt bad for her with that uncle, like, coming after her. Yeah, with no one to protect her. Although she seemed like the kind of character who would, like, not let anything bad happen. But, like, on the other hand, that's terrible. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe she wouldn't let it escalate, but the fact that she had to put up with it without saying anything kind of sucked. Right. Did you enjoy the Quaker humor? Yes, I totally did. And I thought it was adorable that Mike was trying to, like, he tried to use thee and thou as if he were in this, like, other world, which I think is funny to think about, like, that he's coming coming down from New York to Philadelphia and doesn't, like, think about it being an entirely different, like, city where they speak differently, which I don't, I don't know if... That seems like a surprising detail to include about Philadelphia in this movie. I mean, this came out in, what, like, 41? Mm -hmm. It used to be that the accent in Philly was considered very hard to understand. Oh, really? Like, at a certain... I think this might have been a little late for it, but just because we had so much migration of people from the South, Mm -hmm. so there was a heavy Southern accent influence, which is why we still have a lot of weird sounds and stuff, and you can probably hear them in my voice. But I didn't feel like they really had it in this Mm-mm. movie. No. Oh, I just wrote down here, Dexter's an asshole. His name is C.K. Dexter Haven. I mean, and then, why would you even interact with someone like that? I know, I know, he's such a jerk. Also, the, level, the amount of drinking in this movie by everyone yes, very much played into that stereotype of like all old blood families like basically being alcoholic except tracy doesn't drink right she she like typically doesn't she typically doesn't drink and it's only like the night before her wedding where she like realizes what's gonna happen basically she and realizes that she's like in a trap where her father is blaming her for his dalliances and kittredge is fine but that's ck dexter haven is there and mike is like making advances advances and she drinks, like, a lot of alcohol mm-hmm. in a short time. Although, there's a moment when they're dancing at the party where they say it's 4 a.m., so 4 a.m. on her wedding day, and then after that, like, 25 minutes of action yeah. occurs, which, like, how is it not then, like, 7 in the morning? I don't know. <laughs> That's what Mike said, too, when we were watching this. He was like, how could they go to this other guy's house and, like, all these other things happen and then they go to sleep and then it's the wedding day. So, I think that was just a mistake. Like, in my mind, I replaced that with, like, 1 a.m. Right. <laughs> Which is 
I guess would have been more dope. Because it also seems like she wouldn't have been that drunk at four in the morning. Like, at that, if she's been dancing the whole night with Kittredge, it seems unlikely that Kittredge would be like, oh, yes, of course, keep drinking. Over, and uh, over however many hours it is, let's say eight hours, that she would be that drunk. Mm -hmm. Um, Just, like, him and her just, like, knocking back, you know, four martinis in a row. They drank a lot of champagne, which is all terrible for hangovers. And I was like, you are not going to make it through this wedding nope. either way. <laughs> um, well, and so then they basically, they get married hungover, right? Yeah. Like, which is not a PSA, don't get married when you're really drunk. And maybe PSA, don't have like a giant ball the night before your right. wedding. Maybe do it like a couple nights before. Yes. Yeah. Give yourself yeah. a little break, even if you are rich. <laughs> I can't wait till we talk about the fashion because, but 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 we'll get to it. Yeah. Um, what about at the end when they're calling off the wedding, and then Dexter is like telling her what to say, and then she's like, "Oh, I'm gonna go through with the wedding now to my original husband." But Mike pointed out the people who were there for that wedding were there for a wedding between her right. and Kit. So what's Kit's family supposed to so, do? So, like, why did no one get up and leave? Yeah. <laughs> like, be like, oh, okay. This is not the wedding I thought it was going to be. Yeah. No, they just sat there. I, I don't know. It lacks verisimilitude. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question that is about what actually happened that I can't believe after this many times of seeing this movie, I still don't know. So everyone's accusing her of being a prude, yes. basically. So... What does that, what is that based on? Like, did she never sleep with Dexter when they were married? Or I think, was she just uptight? I mean, I think it's all based on the idea that she, like, she acts like she wants people to treat her like a goddess. Like, CK says to her, you know, refers to, you know, the withering glance of the goddess. And, you know, they people refer to her as this queen on this pedestal. They... They talk about her as if she, like, has decided that she, like, deserves to be on this pedestal. As if none of them have any role in, in you know, treating her this way and helping her to believe that she should. So you don't think it's about her sexuality at I all? I don't think so. Because some of the words they chose to say that, I felt like they were trying to imply something about her being frigid. There wasn't anything to back it up, really. I mean, I guess I can see that, like, how... A guy who blames his philandering on the fact that his daughter, like, just on on his daughter, would, you know, use very unkind words to describe his, his daughter's sexuality. And I can believe that that would happen. But, like, on the other hand, she's getting married again two years after she got divorced. Mm-hmm. So, to me, that doesn't sound like she wasted any time at all going back out and, like, yeah. finding a boyfriend and... And she has a midnight swim and makes out with Mike. Like, she's clearly not that uptight. No. So, which to me says that, like, it's just, like, an image that all these men have about her. That they, like, have just decided in their minds that she believes that she's a goddess. Well, and all she's really guilty of is, is not letting these men get away with bad behavior. Right. Because if you look at the other women in the movie, like her mother and her sister... And the way they are so devoted to these, like, very flawed men Men, who make a lot of bad 
choices and like treat people badly, she's basically saying, no, I won't tolerate bad behavior and I'm going to let you know it. And that's what they're angry with her about. Right. Yeah, because I guess we have to assume that he, like, at the beginning of the movie, when C.K. Dexter Haven, you know, goes to soccer and then just pushes her down, like, that's the end of a, like, a fight that they've been having, but that also that's, like, the impetus for her filing for divorce, mm-hmm. or, like, from that moment they're divorced, because she won't stand for it, which is good for her. Yes! <laughs> but, you know, addiction is treated very differently now than it would have been at that time, yeah. and maybe, you don't see any, that all happens off screen, so we don't know if it's just kind of like, she's like, you're a weak person because you're an alcoholic, which we would not think is okay now. At the same time, being married to someone who's an addict is really difficult, and not everyone can do it, especially if the person's, like, not getting treatment. Or it, uh, I, I don't know. I feel like she... I was like, please just, like, escape this family, Tracy, please. And now she's going to be stuck with them, because they all love Dexter. Yeah. Although there's a part of me that thinks, like, maybe there's a redemptive, like, storyline in here that, like, Tracy and, and C.K. Dexter Haven break up he gets sober he realizes that he and gets a job mm-hmm. and realizes that he like has made a huge mistake and still loves Tracy and so he goes through to all these lengths to try and protect Tracy's family by saying like I can get you out of this big story of your father and his philandering with this dancer but you have to like have these photos taken of your wedding you know to protect you and sort of a like I'm your knight in shining armor but you know he's also like he watches out for her with Mike and with Kittredge and socks Mike so that Kittredge doesn't to sort of like (laughs) neutralize the situation so there's a part of me that thinks that maybe he has grown as a character since or grown as a person since we see him in the beginning when they like go off and start their second marriage together they're like actually better people and he he sees her now as not actually a goddess and as a person who deserves to be treated as an equal this is my optimistic yeah i mean based on you know a generous reading of those acts i mean it is true that he protects her family with the from from the scandal and all of that but the thing that throws a monkey wrench into it for me is just how mean he is to her and how much he's just verbally taking her down yeah. Throughout the movie. Oh, yeah. He's not very nice to her. <laughs> it reminded me a lot of negging. Yeah. Like, you know how people do that now? And they're, like, they get the woman on the defensive, so she's trying to ingratiate herself yeah. with a man. Which I hate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could probably go on about this forever. <laughs> um, what is the worst part of it? Oh, beautiful girl. What a gorgeous creature. Beautiful girl. Let me call a preacher. What can I do but give my heart to you? Um, do you want to talk about the costumes? I think so. I feel like there's one other thing I thought was worth discussing, and I can't remember what it is, but maybe it'll come up. How did you like her, Tracy's hat, when they go in the library? In the library. Yeah. I wrote down, I was like, I love that elf hat. I <laughs> know, she's a little elf. She wears other hats like that in other movies, too. So I don't know if that was, like, a Catherine Hepburn thing, if it was just the time, but... Yeah, that random hat that she wears. (laughs) That was ridiculous. I loved her bathing costume. Yes. Like, both the bathing suit, which she looked fabulous in, and... And that robe thing? Yeah, the Grecian cover-up. That did not look too much different from 
her wedding dress that she's wearing. Yes. <laughs> the other dress I really liked was the one she wore to the rehearsal oh, ball yeah. thing mm-hmm. the night before. I thought that she looked really great in that. Uh, and she was in that for a long time. I mean, she's like very willowy, so you can see they dress her differently than they did a lot of other actresses at this time. Yeah, a lot of like long flowy things that accentuated the fact that she had like a 10 inch waist. Yeah, <laughs> and she wore trousers in this mm-hmm. too, which I liked. Yeah. Um, Actually, a lot, a number of characters wore trousers. Dinah wore trousers. I feel like Liz wore, I mean, she wore mostly skirts, but, but she seemed like she was always like raring to go, ready to like get in on the action. The funny thing is, even though I liked the bathing suit cover-up, I did not like the wedding dress. I hated the wedding dress. the hat, the wide-brimmed hat. Well, and that, like, the weird rectangular pat, like panel on her torso that then had, like, cords <laughs> around it to, like, tie it yeah. or something. Like, like, she was wearing a life vest. I don't know. <laughs> it was very strange. Um, what about C.K. Dexter Haven's um, jackets that were sort of, they had, like, really high collars? And he was. He wore at least two different ones that were sort of. They were dinner jackets, but they were like not like American style mm-hmm. dinner jackets. I liked them, and he looked very roguish and sophisticated. Mm-hmm. I thought pretty much they definitely had a big contrast between him and Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, with like his workaday suit. I mean, they both looked good. Dexter was way more striking. Yeah, his workaday <laughs> suits. Um, oh my god. <laughs> He looked like he was dressed like a journalist. (laughs) Yes. But basically whatever movie I watch, I always just like whoever is the journalist (laughs) character. Did you like, speaking of journalists, did you like that it was, that Tracy thought that a guy could live on the earnings of his books? He just, he, she she says to Mike something like, you know, why are you still working as a journalist when you have a book? (laughs) He's like, what? And it was a book of short stories, wasn't it? Like, that is not a moneymaker. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> some people have to work Tracy some people do not have estates large enough that you have to take a car to drive to the stables from the house <laughs> like I forgot about that <laughs> and, and remember when they were like walking back from the party and uh, Mike said what is this strange wood and she was like oh this is just another part of our property <laughs> <laughs> we all want to help one another human beings are like that we want to live by so, each other's hands. did you think there was a social justice message? I mean, I think you mentioned a little bit of it in talking about class. And, I mean, there's obviously a lot of, like, from a gender lens, lots to, like, sink your teeth into. But I don't know if it, like, if the overall message of the film has a, like, social justice thrust to it. I, mean, I didn't think so, just because... The whole movie focuses on this incredibly wealthy, mm-hmm. like, inherited wealth family, and it really glamorizes their lifestyle, and the end result of the movie is that those people stick together. Mm-hmm. So even though they talk about it, I don't think it was really... Ad- it, I mean, really, the argument that those characters were trying to make is, like, don't be prejudiced against rich people. Yeah, basically. <laughs> They're just people, too. And I was <laughs> like, oh, um, hmm, maybe we look at this a different way. <laughs> All right. Like, sure, but maybe prove it. Um. <laughs> and then everyone kept being like, didn't he... About Kit, he, didn't he come from the coal mines? And I was like, Sure. <laughs> yes, but that so he actually worked and was a person. <laughs> oh my 
good. Yeah, so not our not our finest moment in social justice. Living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back. But uh, what about in terms of the Bechdel test? I was thinking about it, and like there were some conversations that were not overtly just about relationships that happen between some people, but I don't think it passes because really mostly what they were talking about was like the wedding or the men and their family or other men. So (laughs) so, uh, did you think it did? No. Although, (laughs) no, not at all. (laughs) But there is that, um, I don't know, just at the very end where Mike asks Tracy to marry him. Like, he's going to save the day and marry Tracy and doesn't think at all about Liz. Tracy, like, looks at Liz and the camera turns to Liz and you just, like, see on her face how, like, heartbroken she is. And Tracy doesn't say, you know, no, like, I don't love you. She says it would break Liz's heart if, you know, if that happened. And, you know, and I can't do that to Liz, which I think is fairly noble. Even though, like, she could obviously say, like, this is not what I want, but she does it for some another woman. Which I guess you could argue, like, just, like, say what you want, Tracy. This is part of the problem. <laughs> like, take your life by the throat and by his throat and get what you want. But I liked that about it, that she sort of had this sense of solidarity with Liz. Yeah, the sisterhood. Yeah. I, I still think of her options that Mike was definitely the best. I, I, don't I mean, think he was the best guy, but maybe Liz guy. deserved him. But yes, <laughs> they would not have had any kind of future in a relationship together. No. But he was the only one who I thought had any redeeming qualities. Yeah. In terms of, like, critical thought and capacity to change and things yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I told you, I was telling you yesterday or the day before about the book that I have been reading called, um, Writing a Woman's Story by Carolyn Heilbrunn, who's Mm a, she was a, like, a feminist, like, lit crit writer, and and she taught at Columbia in the English department and had, is a sort of a seminal, like, feminist philosopher, but... I was surprised um, as I, I finished reading the book this morning, but yesterday as I was had just finished watching this movie and was sort of thinking about how I really felt about it, I was reading her book on the train, and there's a section where she talks about movies from this period, from like the 1930s and 1940s, and Cary Grant movies in particular, and Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn movies in particular. Like, she all but said the Philadelphia story. And talking about how there's, like, just a bunch of them where people get remarried. And how, you know, there's a certain... When people get married for the first time as young people, they don't always... It's not always a successful marriage where the, the couple, the two people in the marriage are equal and, like, respect each other. And it's only when they, like, get remarried, whether that's divorced and then legally remarried or they like come to see themselves in sort of a like a different light and come to like understand their marriage in a different way that they like actually get to have a real relationship with each other this is the first movie I think that we've discussed that actually has that happen right Mm -hmm. but there's also like the movie Mr. and Mrs. Smith that is Carol Lombard and I forget who the guy is, but it's a similar story in that, like, there's a man and a woman who are fighting, and then it turns out that they're not legally married, and so she's like, great, I'm not marrying you, I'm getting out of here, 
and it turns out that they like they end up falling back in love and getting married for real and then it's at that point that they're actually like in a mature relationship in a mature relationship I read something about this like a year or two ago and there's some specific term for that type of movie like it's not the marriage plot but it's something the remarriage plot yeah and because <laughs> uh, there's another character movie like that called My Favorite Wife oh yeah where, like, he thinks his wife died, but really she's been on, like, a desert island and comes back years later. But I read that part of the reason these movies were popular at the time was because they couldn't... They wanted to be able to explore extramarital relationships, but they couldn't... Or, like, they couldn't... Because of that, the code. Because yeah. of the code, they couldn't do that. So they had to make it, like, they were exploring these relationships in a way that was okay because like they weren't really married or they thought the other person was dead but then they always come back to right. each other it all ends at like the marriage plot yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, which i i enjoy those because I, I do think there's something sort of sexy about them like a couple like having conflict like in conflict in an intelligent way mm-hmm. and then like resolving it and coming back together. Well, I, His Girl Friday is like that, too, the, yeah. with Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell, where they're like, they, I guess it, they're more interesting in a way because you don't have to, the, the like, the falling in love, like, romance stuff, the, like, well, cute kind of right, stuff. Right, exactly. Like, it, the, like they're over that. Mm-hmm. The, what they're really interested in is, like, how, it's like a whole nother level of, like, getting to know each other and, like, finding mm-hmm. it out and... <laughs> And bickering about stuff that's <laughs> hilarious, but higher stakes in a way. Yeah, that's interesting because I never really thought of this movie like within that genre, but it totally fits now that you point that out. There's a lot of Cary Grant movies. <laughs> that's three, I think. That we <laughs> well, if you were married to Cary Grant and you had the option of going back to Cary Grant, I would 100% remarry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what rating would you give this movie? I might. I might give it a three and a half. I might give it a, yeah, I might give it a three and a half. Because it was such a delight to, like, see them, all the actors acting mm-hmm. and performing, in, like, all together in one place. But, yeah. I would say same, three and a half. It's one of those movies where I love the performances so much, but the plot frustrates me a lot. Yeah. And it's also, like... It's a bunch of rich people problems, too. <laughs> we cannot relate to them. No, we do not relate. I mean, we might not live that far from where these events supposedly took place, but we do not relate. Yeah. Um, so we're going to go in a totally different direction with this Yes, movie, we are. And we're going to watch cult classic The Blob. May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.